Good morning. Welcome to the Calvary Chapel Sydney live stream. Certainly miss seeing your smiling faces um, on a Sunday morning, but it's a privilege to speak God's word and to to pray, to sing, to draw near to Him together. Uh, just keep looking to the Lord. No matter what you go through, it, it's really neat that God does work all things for good to those who love God. And, and Paul was convinced of that truth because he had gone through things that did not seem good. And he saw them turn out in the end to be good, knowing that God is good. And that's so appropriate with this message today. So let's pray. Thank you, Father, that you are good, that we can trust you, that you make all things work together for good, and that we can know that you remain good even when things seem bad, when things are difficult, when life seems out of control, we know that you are our life, that you have redeemed us, you will restore, you will renew, and we have this hope of eternal life that you've given to all those who love you, to all those who fear you and have repented, have been born again through the blood of Jesus. Uh, just thank you for the gospel. Thank you for the hope that we have of a future that is glorious in your presence. We ask your blessing upon this word today as we read. Uh, please fill me and all those watching with your spirit that we might comprehend what you're saying and have, give us soft hearts, Lord, as we humble ourselves before you. In Jesus' name, amen. There is such a comfort in knowing God, that He is sovereign, and this comfort is not just for some people, like Paul, but for you and for me. Um, and God's Word, it, it accomplishes its purposes for which He has sent it, and we can know that in every situation, God is working for good because He remains good. And when we rejoice in the absolute goodness of God, it enables us to trust Him and draw near to Him even in the midst of suffering or pain. Uh, no matter what he does or decides, we can rest in that because he is good and his mercy endures forever. James 5.11, it says, Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Satan wanted Job to curse God, but God's intent was to teach angels, to teach men, how faith in God overcomes all adversity and it reveals his compassion and mercy. You may not have heard of Job. You may not have read through that book, uh, but we're going to be studying through that book. So turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. Um, and even if you've read this book or you're familiar with him, there's great benefit for us all. And I'll give us a brief introduction on the book of Job right before Psalms in your Bible. It's widely viewed to be among the oldest books in the Bible. It's a style of a mix of narrative prose and poetry. There's a lot of dialogue between uh, Job and uh, his friends, and who are Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And there's another man named Elihu, who... Some believe, because we don't know exactly when the book was written, we don't know exactly who penned the book, but Elihu is strong. Um, there's some evidence to suggest that he might have, because there's a point in Job 32, 16, and 17 where Elihu speaks about himself in first person what he's thinking. So it gives us some insight into him that as an author he would have had. 
But Job is not like a fictitious character or a fable. He's a, he's a real person who lived. Um, it says this in Ezekiel 14, 14. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord. So Job, he's as real as Noah, real as Daniel, a historical figure. Paul also quotes from the book of Job in 1 Corinthians 3, 19. Now, the time frame of this book is likely around the days of the patriarchs in the days of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob before the children of Israel went into Egypt. It's strongly, there's a lot of evidence to support this because Job's age is a big one. He lived 140 years after his troubles. And that long lifespan agrees with people who lived several generations after the great flood. And his wealth, like that of Abraham, was measured in his flocks and herds and his livestock. Dr. Zuck, he also points out the language used in this book harkens back to earlier time period. Uh, he talks of the Hebrew word kestah, translated piece of silver, is used elsewhere only tw twice, both times in reference to Jacob. That's in Genesis 33 and Joshua 24. He also points out the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans, who we'll read about in this first chapter. They were nomads in Abraham's time, but later they settled down and were not nomadic. Finally, there's no reference to Mosaic law, to priesthood, to feasts or holy days, that uh, if Job was an observant Jew, he would have done this. In fact, he's, he's believed to be a Gentile. And he acted as a priest for his family. And I really like the way that Pastor David Guzik describes this book. He writes, the book of Job is not primarily about one man's suffering and pain. Job's problem is not so much financial or social or medical. His central problem is theological. Job must deal with the fact that in his life, God does not act the way he always thought God would and should act. In this drama, the book of Job is not so much a record of solutions and explanations to his problems. It's more a revelation of Job's experience and the answers carried within his experience. And I think that's really great insight. Brothers and sisters, does God always do what you think he should do? Does he always act and decide according to your thinking? No, he doesn't. So there remains much for us to understand and to learn from him. Job chapter 1, starting in verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright and one who feared God and shunned evil. And seven sons and three daughters were born to him. Also, his possessions were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and a very large household, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. There are many opinions about exactly where Uz is located, somewhere in the Arabian desert towards the Euphrates. The name Uz is found a couple of times in the book of Genesis. The first mention is the great-grandson of Noah in Genesis 10, verse 23. Our introduction to Job is really about his godly character, that he was blameless and upright. This isn't a claim to sinless perfection. I mean, he was a man after all, but he was someone who had integrity. He had a flawless reputation. You could not place blame on him. He was someone who was upright. He put aside evil. He, he did not go near it. He feared God. And he reminds me a bit of the great high priest and uh, king 
Melchizedek. But we don't have a lot of his background, but here's a guy who is the priest of God, a king, and he greets Abraham after his victory and uh, celebrates um, with worship of God. Like you see this Gentile who, or, or this person we just don't know about. And Job, we don't really know much about his background. We don't know how he came to know God, why he feared God, but he does. And he did so in an upright and blameless way. His genuine faith, it was accounted to him as righteousness. And in God's sight, he was blameless. The second thing that we're told of Job was concerning his large family and his great possessions. Children in ancient times were viewed as a blessing from the Lord. He had seven sons and three daughters. He had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and that would be a, a common mode of transportating, transportation of goods for trade. 500 yoke of oxen. So that's 1,000 paired ox used for tilling and farming. He had 500 female donkeys. These were prized for their milk in that day. I've never had donkey milk before. I don't know if I ever will, but it was very good and continues to be good. Um, and a very large household. You think you'd need a lot of servants to tend, to milk, to breed, to work these animals. And the servants themselves needed to be managed and fed. The man, it says, was the greatest of all the people of the East. So the most wealthy, the most influential, the most famous, the most prosperous. It would be an amazing feat to be called the greatest person in the city of Sydney. But Job, he was the greatest person in the region, in that whole area, in the whole land. He was a great man. Job 1 verse 4. And his sons would go and feast in their houses, each on his appointed day and would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. So it was when the days of feasting had run their course that Job would send and sanctify them. And he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did regularly. Now we have an example of his piety and fear of the Lord. His children, they would gather to feast in their houses on their day, which is likely a birthday. Uh, and the fact that they owned a house, it's a pretty big deal. These were permanent structures. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they dwelt in tents. But they had permanent structures that could accommodate a great number of people. And they wouldn't just feast for a day. It says when the days were concluded. So they were celebrating, they were feasting. And Job had a messenger report to him so he could know how many actually went and he rose in the morning, it says, and offered burnt offerings for them all, just in case they might have sinned by cursing God in their hearts. So it's not something that he saw, but it's something they could do. And he was very concerned that they would offend God in any way. And these were his grown children. So he obviously feared God greatly at great personal cost. When we see people in sin, we're concerned. He was concerned his kids might sin. And he offered sacrifices for them. And I'm sure being upright, he offered sacrifices for himself as well. Job 1 verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? So Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. The setting changes dramatically. Now we're in the presence of God. The angels are presenting themselves to the Lord. 
The term sons of God, it's used later in Job 38, 7, when the angels shouted for joy at the creation of the earth. And among the angels was Satan himself, who, though he rebelled against his creator, he remained under the authority and power of God, and he still had access to God. It's, he's kind of like an ex-employee or someone on probation whose key card still works and can have a conversation with the boss. Um, and that access is going to be taken away at some point when he is permanently cast down. The idea that Satan resides in hell is, is totally unscriptural. For that's the place that God created for Satan for his future torment, a place that he will do anything to try to avoid. A similar interaction between God and a lying spirit we read of in 1 Kings 22, starting in verse 20. It says, And the Lord said, Who will persuade Ahab to go up that he may fall at Ramoth Gilead? So one spoke in this manner and another spoke in that manner. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will persuade him. The Lord said to him, In what way? So he said, I will go out and being a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And the Lord said, You shall persuade him. And also prevail. Go out and do so. So we have angels presenting themselves before the Lord. There's a lying spirit that suggests he be the one to go and influence Ahab to go up to Ramoth Gilead. And in this case, Ahab delighted to surround himself with false prophets. And so he was going to reap what he had sown. He loved falsehood. He loved a lie. And so God would allow him to be persuaded by a lie. But in his grace, he sent Micaiah, the son of Imlah, to give him the truth and give him a real interpretation that he was going up to fall at Ramoth Gilead. And Ahab has this choice. Am I going to obey God? Am I going to do what Micaiah, the son of Imlah said? The man that I hate because he never says anything good about me or the people that I like to listen to and that say the things that please me. He chose their way and he was slain that day. I've heard many people rightly say, we as Christians, we are in a spiritual battle. We've always been in one, but we didn't realize it until our eyes were open when we came to Christ. Um, and if your concept of a spiritual battle does not focus primarily on God's sovereignty, his power, his goodness and promises, more on the forces of darkness and what we have to do to try to oppose them, we're really missing everything because the victory that we have is not won by our doing, but by Jesus Christ and what he has done, who he is, what he has accomplished, and what he's promised that matters most. God's created all the spirits. They are all sub subject to him. They cannot do a thing without his approval. He is our victorious king, and so we follow him. Even if Satan is allowed to buffet us for a season, as it was with Job. And so God asked the devil, knowing full well what he's been up to, where do you come from? Satan answered, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking back and forth on it. Unlike God, Satan, he's a created being. He can only be in one place at one time. And his character is very different from that of Job. Jesus called him a murderer and a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. Satan knew what God said to Adam in the garden. That in the day they ate of the tree in the midst of the garden, they would surely die. He knew that. And he sowed seeds of doubt in the mind of Eve, hoping to influence her so that she would get her husband to eat, sin, and die, to transgress. And that tactic worked a treat. 
Satan can't overthrow God, so he delights to undermine him. He loves to attempt to destroy those made in God's image. He's like, uh, he, he knows he cannot, I believe that Satan believes he can win, that he can outsmart in his pride, in his arrogance, he thinks he can actually overcome and, and be as God, and God will set him straight in due course. 1 Peter 5.8, there's this warning to believers. It says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We have this warning that we should be sober and vigilant. But in this warning, there's also a reminder. Satan must have permission from God to do anything. Because it says, whom he may devour. Paul, he calls Satan in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age. And he blinds those who do not believe. So when there's unbelief, he is able to blind He's called the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience in Ephesians 2.2. 2. He doesn't sleep, but neither does our Savior, who knew very well what Satan had been up to. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil? So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does, God fear God for, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not lay a hand on his person. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. God asked Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Job stood out from all others as one who was upright, blameless. He feared God and he shunned evil. Satan, his, his role, really what he wants to do, and he, he wants to blind people from the truth. He wants to turn people from God to sin. He wants to turn people to wickedness. But in Job, he was unable to do so. Despite all his lies and all his power and all his schemings, Job remained upright in the fear of God. And I think God, I believe that God asked Satan this because Satan had long been looking at Job and wondering how he could get at him to ruin him and destroy him physically and spiritually. Satan doesn't say, Job who? What? I mean, there's a lot of people in the world, God. Um, how, how would I know about Job? No, God asked him because he'd been looking at Job. He had considered Job. He had been wondering, like, how can I get at this guy? There's, there's a, there's a hedge all around him, around all that he has. God's causing him to prosper, and he's blessing the work of his hands. He knew well how Job had eluded every trap. Everything that people had fallen for, Job wasn't falling for it. Just like the, that, those demons knew Paul, the apostle. In the book of Acts, we read of the seven sons of Sceva, who took upon themselves the role of exorcists. They tried to cast an, out an unclean spirit. They said, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preached. So Jesus is not their Lord, but they realized that Paul, in the name of Christ, had power to cast out demons. And so they were using his formula. And this is what happened in Acts 19, 15, and 16. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus, I know. And Paul, I know, but who are you? 
Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Demons know who Jesus is. And these demons, this demon knew who Paul was because he was in Christ. And they have the power to prevail against, to overpower and to wound those who don't know Christ. But in Christ, we are protected. Satan answered, does Job fear God for nothing? Just think about that statement. He's suggesting the reason and Job's motivation for fearing God was selfish and that he was only doing so because God had blessed him and given him a lot of stuff. He had paid him off with benefits and it strikes at God's worthiness to be worshiped and that God is bribing Job to fear him. Matthew Henry wrote this. It was a great truth that Job did not fear God for nothing. He got much by it for godliness is great gain, but it was a falsehood. He would not have feared God if he had not got by this as the event proved Job's friends charged him with hypocrisy because he was greatly afflicted Satan because he greatly prospered. So Satan's like, sure, God, he fears you because you've made him wealthy. You put a hedge around him, around everything that he has, and you've blessed the work of his hands. See how closely Satan was looking at him, looking for an opening, an opportunity that he might afflict him. He might overpower him, but found none. And really, this is the case for all those who are in Christ. We cannot be troubled by him when we are held fast and protected and guarded by our good shepherd, Jesus Christ. He is our savior. He shields us. He's given us the Holy Spirit who's given us spiritual armor that we are protected against the fiery darts of the wicked one. We've got the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, that shield of faith that extinguishes those fiery darts. The devil challenged that if God were to afflict Job, he would curse God to his face. And God agreed to the proposition, knowing that the faith of Job was genuine. A goldsmith does not fear to melt pure gold because he knows he will not lose anything. In fact, it will only make what he has, that, price, that precious possession, even more valuable because it's been proved. It's been tried. It's come through that crucible and it is pure. God removed that hedge around Job's possessions. He gave them all into Satan's power. There's a temptation to wonder why God would do this or find fault that he would even consider such a thing much less give all Job's possessions and family to Satan. It doesn't seem right or fair, right? There's part of us that we go, hold on. Shouldn't uh, faithfulness be rewarded now and in the life to come? Shouldn't people who fear God and put aside evil uh, receive a reward now with the best life this world can offer? Well, that's a worldly perspective. It ignores how it was by God's grace that Job was the man he was and had the things he had. And it was Job who gave God life in the first place and faith to trust him. Isn't God a redeemer? Isn't he sovereign overall? Isn't he righteous and trustworthy? Please turn in your Bibles to Romans 9, verse 20 and 21. Paul shows the folly of man finding fault with God over anything he does or decides. We read there in Romans 9, 20, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? 
Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Paul uses this example to show how silly, how foolish and ridiculous it is for any created thing to contradict or criticize God. A potter, he puts clay on the wheel, makes a pot, a plate or a bowl, whatever he decides to make out of that clay. And it'd be one thing if while making that clay, a fellow potter came up and said, hey, your, your uh, clay isn't centered on the wheel or uh, your, your clay is way too wet or, you know, we've had a lot of orders for bowls, so stop making those tiles and we need to start making more bowls, right? If another potter comes alongside and says something, okay, but that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying it would be ridiculous for the pot to say, having been made, why did you make me a pot? When the, the pot wouldn't exist except for the potter's wisdom and skill and ability and imagining that pot and fashioning it as he intended. The only reason why we can reason is because God's given us brains, right? He's given us the ability to think and to decide and to make choices. Do you know more than God? When he created you, when he's made this world that we live in, that operates as it does, with all the systems we can observe in place, is a potter obligated to ask his clay for advice? When the thing that the clay is going to be had, could never have come into the mind of the clay because it can't think, it just is. The potter may judge a pot to be too small or too big or make another, but the clay has no right to decide anything. And if we take the position of another potter, we're really trying to put ourselves in a position as an equal with God, just like Satan was doing, questioning God, telling him how he would be better served or that he was mistaken. The potter who has power of the clay also has power of the pot and it doesn't even take a potter to smash a pot and to grind it into powder. Job 1 verse 13. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And a messenger came to Job and said, the oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. When the Sabaeans raided them and took them away, indeed, they have killed the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. Satan went from the presence of the Lord, that hedge of protection removed, and he waited for a celebratory, joyous season, a season of feasting, when the chance of disappointment would be great, when Job would perhaps be most vulnerable and overwhelmed with this terrible news all at once. As we've heard that Job would have been engaged in sending messengers to inquire about his kids, how they were doing, organizing sacrifices to the Lord. He's sanctifying his children. This bad news comes to him that the oxen were plowing, the donkeys were feeding, and they were stolen by these raiding Sabaeans. They slaughtered all the servants. These were people that Job knew well. The oxen and donkeys, they're a total loss. There was no insurance payment that he could receive. There was no recourse for him. And you just think about the thoughts that would be going through his head at this point. Like, oh no, they're all gone. 
Those servants, those families that were in my household, they're gone. How can we protect ourselves against the Sabaeans if they come again? As his mind is reeling with this news, the messenger hasn't even finished speaking yet. And another messenger comes and says, the fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. So it wasn't a fire that had crept along the ground. It was a fire that came down from heaven and God was credited for it when it was Satan who unleashed it. 7,000 sheep burned. The servants consumed only this one escaped to tell Job the story. I can't imagine what Job was thinking at this point, just shell-shocked. Like, okay, this is not how I expected this day to go. Verse 17, while he was still speaking, another came and said, the Chaldeans formed three bands, raided the camels and took them away. Yes, and killed the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And suddenly a great wind came from across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell on the young people and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Wow. While he was still speaking, another came saying that the Chaldeans had formed three bands. They had raided the camels, killed the rest of the servants. And like in that moment, he had lost all of his wealth, all of his possessions, all of his food, all of his matter, means of produce, all those who were working for him, people that he loved. And then this fourth messenger arrives and says, your kids, they were all gathering together and feasting. And there was this huge wind, you know, a mini cyclone that rushed through a, a, a tornado or something, and the wind collapsed the house upon all 10 children, no hope for their survival or recovery, confirmed deceased. Now, when a parent loses one child, no one can appreciate the depth of pain and suffering, their sorrow that they feel. How much less can we know what Job was going through when he had lost 10 grown children in a day? It's unimaginable to, to, to even begin to consider the, the shock and the horror, how overwhelming the situation was. Would Job curse God in anger? Would he cast aside faith in bitterness? Job 1 verse 20. Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin, nor charge God with wrong. Job tore his robe. He shaved his head. Signs of deep grief and mourning. He would have been unrecognizable as the same person. I remember when I was a kid and my mom would take her glasses off and she wore them always and she looked so different. Like it took a little while to get used to her. Someone who you've always known who has a great big beard and they shave it off. They just look like a different person. And so Job, is, his head is shaved. Perhaps his beard also is, is cut off and he's mourning and he's weeping and he doesn't look like the same man. In fact, he is a changed man. 
but there's something about him that hasn't changed. He still fears the Lord. He still worships and blesses God when things were difficult, when everything seemed good, and when everything seemed to be going awful. Tragedy struck. He falls to the ground. He worships God. His mouth is filled with blessing, not a curse. Wealth had not corrupted Job from humility. He realized, I came into this world naked, and I'm going to leave it the same way, with nothing. He acknowledged that all he had was a gift from God, and thus God was justified to take it all away, if he saw fit. And Job blessed God for it. His response, it's more astounding to me than his net worth when he arose that morning or how much he had lost by that night. His response, it is amazing. It's miraculous. He chose to worship and bless the Lord in his pain. Even when he didn't know the stakes, he didn't know what was going on in the heavenlies at this point. But he demonstrated he loved God more than his happy family, more than his wealth or his things. And he's not angry at the devil either. He's not lashing out at how, how wicked Satan is to deprive him of what he loved. He understood that all he faced was by the permission of God, who is above all and remains good. I like Spurgeon's quote in the Enduring Word Commentary. Spurgeon said, Satan was acting, but so was God in heaven. He saith to himself, if Satan shall do much, I will do more. If he takes away much, I will give more. If he tempts the man to curse, I will fill him so full of love to me that he shall bless me. I will help him. I will strengthen him. Yea, I will uphold him with the right hand of my righteousness. Job lost everything, but God still held him. He hadn't lost God. God hadn't lost Job. He was going to uphold him. And despite his devastations, Job did not charge God with wrong. He didn't accuse him of folly. And what God already knew was confirmed by Job's response to bless and to praise God. Because Job's faith in God was not dependent on his wealth, on his large family, on his material goods or honor of this world. And not even Satan himself can strip God of the glory and praise that he is due because he is good. He is glorious. Let's turn to Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1. This is the verse alluded to by Spurgeon, and it turns our eyes to Jesus. We marvel at the faith of Job, but we ought not worship him. That worship should be reserved for God alone. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail, nor be discouraged, till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. 
I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. Job was upheld by God who does not disappoint. We can be disappointed because we have an expectation. We think God should do things the way that we see fit, but he does not disappoint. He exceeds our expectations because he is loving and gracious. And he would send his servant, Jesus, the son of God, whom he would lead by the hand to call us to salvation and righteousness by faith in him. He supplied us a new covenant of grace. And he's a light to us Gentiles. We're those who were blind and in that prison house. We're the ones who were brought forth from despair and death. Even if our suffering should exceed that of Job, we can bless the Lord who has put the Holy Spirit on us, who calls us servants now and children in whom he delights. I mean, think about that, who we are in Christ and all Christ is for us. That the things that we have in this life, in this world that are passing away, we have a love and a future that will never pass away, reserved in heaven with the Lord who fills us now and calls us his own. Job lost everything, but he still had God who upheld him. Life and all we call our own, they are just gifts from the hand of our loving God for a season. There's things that you treasure Not because the thing itself is valuable, but because of who gave it to you. Do you have anything like that? I can look at my possessions and see a handful of things. Like, you know, I could buy that thing for not much money, but the reason why it's precious to me is because someone I love gave it to me. And that's why I treasure the item. The item is special because of the person. So we, but we only have that connection with some things, not everything. But how valuable it is that we see everything we have as a gift from God. The person who gave you that thing, that, that person's from God. That, that God gave you that relationship with them. It's not just about the object. It's about the one who supplied everything for us. So if we see everything as a gift from God, who has the right to take away in season and to bless and to praise him, we are... Uh, in a place of, of humility and acknowledgement of God's goodness to us. That we, it's so good when we delight in what God has given, not because it's worth a lot of money or it's useful or it's ours to control, but because it's God's gift to us and we value him overall. And that's why we should value our life. That's why we keep looking to him and rejoice in his love. The giver, not the gifts is alone worthy of worship and blessing forever. So let's look to the Lord, brothers and sisters. Let's keep our eyes on him. Let's, let's allow him to, I mean, he's going to rule. He's going to reign. He reigns. Uh, let's, let's not question him or criticize him when we ought to bless him. Let's not curse him or anyone else or even the devil because we have been blessed. We have been uh, redeemed by his grace. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the way that your work and that your wisdom is above all things, that your ways are higher than ours and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And Lord, may we have this posture 
as Job did, who humbled himself before you in the midst of pain and sorrow that was beyond reckoning. And bless the name of God, who is glorious and good. And Lord, I, my heart goes out for those who are hurting today, for those who are questioning why you would allow something, why you would take away something that's very precious. I pray, Lord, that you would cause our eyes to look to you in your goodness, to recognize that you do work all things together for the good. And we may not see it today. We may not ever fully appreciate it. But Lord, may we appreciate you more because of your grace and your generosity and your kindness to us all. We pray as we study through this book, Lord, that you would open our eyes to see you clearer, that we would love you more, that we would acknowledge that everything we have in this life is a gift from you, and that when we go the way of the earth, we go to you because Jesus has come to us. So we magnify you, Lord, we exalt you, and we praise your holy name, and we ask that you would uh, fill us with your presence, you would guide us with your spirit, and that our lips be filled with blessing, for you are holy and worthy of all worship. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.